You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And we're back again. It has been a little while, but once again, it is a very important podcast. Another legend of the game is hanging them up. None other than Dan Clark, GB captain and the men's all-time uh, leading appearance leader. That doesn't make sense. All-time caps leader. Um all-time point scorer, all-time rebound leader. So when we're talking about legends, he is a legend. Um, he was one of the first, well, actually the first British player to sign a junior contract in Europe uh, when he signed in Spain with his Estudiantes. And now, you know, 20 years later, um, is finally uh, saying goodbye to, to playing professionally. He's got another opportunity on the horizon, um, working with the professional basketball club in the front office. Kind of vague about it, but I'm sure there'll be announcements soon, specifically what that is. Um, but I thought it was time that we sort of come on come on the podcast. He's done a couple of appearances with us, but this time do a little bit more of a career retrospective as well as discussing why uh, he has decided to hang them up at this point. You know, he, he signed in Manchester last year. It was a two-year deal, um, and it was his first season in the BBL. And of course, now is just coming off uh, Eurobasket, a very tough Eurobasket performance, which of course we spoke about, um, and all the you know the, the the troubles that GB has been going through, the difficulties they've had. Um, so yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. And again, you know, really sad. It's the end of an era, uh, especially for the Great Britain program. You know, he's been an ever-present force on the squad, uh, suiting up pretty much every single summer, as well as previous to his debut in 2009, uh, representing the junior national teams as well. So when we talk about um, players that have given it all for their country, uh, I think he is... Uh, up amongst the top of them so yeah really enjoyable conversation um and yeah excited to follow his career and see what is next as always before we get into the show um if you like what we're doing if you want to support what we're doing please check out our patreon account that is at patreon.com forward slash hoops fix p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash h-o-o-p-s-f-i-x there you can sign up to give us a monthly or annual contribution for as much or as little as you would like. It goes a long way in helping, supporting the work that we're doing. You know, this stuff is not free. It does cost money. Um, and the more people that are watching these shows, that are consuming our content, um, that sign up to support, the more work and stuff that we can do in terms of trying to grow this British basketball thing. So yeah, check it out, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. As always, let me know what you think. I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment below. Uh, if you're following on social media, drop us a comment at HoopsFix. Or if you want some one-on-one interaction, you can always drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. I reply to every single one. Anyway, that is enough from me. Here is this week's show. I say this week like it's weekly. It hasn't been weekly for a long time. But here is the, this latest episode of the HoopsFix podcast with me and GB captain Dan Clark. So um, we're here for a particular reason. You've obviously made the decision to hang them up and retire. Um, you know, massive news, kind of the end of an era for British basketball a little bit. Um, but I think, the, you know, that, that makes sense to start with kind of how have you come to that decision? Why have you made the decision to, to retire? Um, yeah, and I mean, as you said, it's, uh, it's been a tough decision, I think. Um, I'm not, I think it's one that not many people will, will be expecting. And yeah, a lot of thought, a lot of, you know, conversations 
going one way, going the other way, you know, a lot of uncertainty really. But basically it's come down to that, you know, I'm at peace with what I've done in my career. I'm happy with how it's gone. Uh, well, more than happy, I'm pretty proud of what, what I've done really. And yeah, and I think in, in life everything comes to an end, you know, and I think it's important to, to, to be able to realise that and, you know, I'm lucky enough that other doors are starting to open and, and I just feel like it's the right time for me personally, um, looking back over my career and, you know, what's to come in the future basically. So yeah, I think it's the right decision. You know, I'm obviously going to miss the game, or not miss the game, but miss playing, I think, more than anything, the day-to-day grind as I normally call it, you know, the times in the locker room with the teammates, the trips, the, you know, just the day-to-day, you know, lifestyle that I've been, I've come used to over all these years is is going to drastically change, but, you know, I think I'm in a good position, you know, mentally, feel really good physically, which is, is again, was another plus point, I think, being able to walk away from the game uh, on my own terms, you know, and not because I've been, been forced to or, or the injuries have kind of, you know, held me down or held me back, you know, I feel, you know, I've had my injury problems over the years, but I do feel really good at the moment, so yeah, I'm, you know, really at peace with the decisions I've made, and I think I'm making it for the right reasons. Coming into uh, the season just gone, did you have any um, sort of idea, inkling in your head that this could be the last one? Well, I mean, uh, when I came back to the BBL, it was... Um, to kind of start off a transitioning period. I had uh, no idea how long that period would be. Um, it was very much, you know, how I felt, you know, season on season, really. Uh, and then on what else was going on around personally and, you know, professionally in other, in other areas of my life, really. Um, but, yeah, I made no... I wasn't hiding anything when I came back to the BBL. It was part of a transitioning period, and I started doing a Masters... Um, thinking about you know life after professional sport kind of thing and and yeah uh, obviously played the year I really enjoyed it which was you know also a good thing to to have as my last year I really enjoyed playing back in the UK and and playing in front of you know people that I'd never really played in front of apart from the national team here here and there so yeah it was it was a good experience and one you know that I deeply treasure and and I'm proud again very proud of and but yeah I think I could play another year but I think the time's right, basically. Your um, what is your masters in? My masters is in sport and business management and politics. Politics being a very important one in British basketball, obviously. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and so, when you look to kind of what you are transitioning into, have you got any any idea of kind of what, what the next step is for you? Yeah, um, you know, I've made it very clear over the last few years, and especially you know, thinking and, you know, in my downtime that coaching is not for me. Um, you know, I've, I'm from a basketball family. Dad's a coach, obviously. Mum's been involved. Ella's obviously involved. Um, you know, so I've had exposure to all levels of the game and I just don't feel like coaching is something that I would enjoy or, or get the most out of. Um, but there are other areas connected to basketball, uh, more behind the scenes, um, that allow me to still have that competitive edge. But at the same time, you know, they give me another insight and look on, on the way basketball's run and, and produce basically on the court. So what is it that you're potentially going to be doing? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm looking to move into like a type of general manager, uh, basketball-orientated role um, in the UK. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to discuss in, in any more detail at the moment. Um, but, yeah, but basically I'll be moving into a role, as I said, that allows me to, you know, to carry on very much linked to basketball, very much linked to sport uh, and something that I'm extremely excited about, really. So did you, um, when you were making a decision whether or not to retire, was this offer potentially on the table already? Like, did it help kind of make that decision because you knew you potentially had something to go into? Yeah, definitely. You know, and, and it's, very, it's, it's pretty obvious that, you know, jobs like this, you know, especially in basketball and especially in the UK, there aren't many of, you know, being able to move into a, almost like a general manager role, you know, how many professional teams are in the league now? 10, 11 teams, you know, there's one national team, so that's like 11, 11 roles, you know, and in Europe it's the same, you know, there's one per team, it's not like you're a player and there's, and there's 12, 14 spots up per team, you know, there's one per team and, and a lot of the time, you know, it is very much if you played at that club, if you done anything with that club and, you know, do you know that club? So, so yeah, I'm extremely grateful, extremely, you know, pleased that something's, you know, appeared at this moment in time. Um, there were other options, you know, that I could have moved into, but I think this is, is the right one for me. And, you know, it's a perfect transitioning role, really, moving out of basketball and into, into an area that I really think I can and help and, and move the programme forward, really. So if you stopped working out and everything like playing, like kind of when did you stop doing all of that and make that decision? Um, so to be honest with you, since Eurobasket, um, you know, the idea of, of you know, moving away from the playing side of the game has been very much in my mind. Um, you know, and, and as people, we subconsciously send ourselves messages that I didn't really realise until I started really becoming... You know, and since you're a basket, I haven't really worked out and I haven't kind of thought about working out. You know, so that was another, again, I think it's just my, my body, my mind showing me that now was, you know, the right time. And and so, yeah, I mean, it was, I believe that and, and hopefully, you know, the future will show me that, that it was the right time. You know, you, you mentioned Eurobasket there. It's, you know, it's not sugarcoated. It was a, it was a brutal, brutal campaign. Um do you think that actually helped push you make that decision of just like, you know what, like this is just the national team stuff is getting pretty tiring. You know, as I said, before we start recording these conversations around the Federation, the failures of the Federation is something that we've been having for years. Um, and here we are and it's kind of happened on a bigger stage. Uh, you know, I really felt for the players watching it, kind of seeing the interviews, you know, in the mix zones afterwards, in the press conferences. And you're, rather than talking about the basketball, we're talking about the sort of the off-court stuff again. Um, you know, how, how difficult was, was Eurobasket for you um, personally? Um, I mean, it's still a bit hard to talk about really because, you know, the emotions are still so raw. Um, it, yeah, as you said, it was an extremely difficult time. You know, as a group, as individuals, um, you know, both from players and staff that were surrounded by a team. Um, you know, I would say in my career that probably spans, what, 20 years now, that was three of the hardest weeks I've had. Um, you know, the problem being that it was only three weeks um, and it wasn't longer. You know, so I do think if it was longer, then, you know, the experience would have been different. But yeah, it wasn't, you know, the, the thing that most hit me or hit home hardest while we were away was the that we weren't even angry, we weren't, you know, annoyed or we wanted to throw our toys out of our pram or whatnot. You know, we were just sad about the whole situation in the fact that we felt 
you know, deserted, um, alone, you know, kind of just pushed out into like such a, um, a world stage, um, you know, just to <laughs> get our asses hand to us basically, because, you know, as any player will know, you can work out and you can run up and down and you can lift as much as you want and scrimmage as much as you want, but until you get into a proper game, there's nothing like that, you know, and that, that lack of prep was just, you know, really hard to accept. You know, you can, as a professional athlete, you can try and trick your mind to, to believe in that everything's okay, that, you know, that we can do it, that we can, you know, make up the difference just through our togetherness and, and our belief in each other, which, you know, if there's one thing that, that you know, as that team has is, is belief in one another and togetherness, you know, and I think one of the main reasons we were there at Eurobasket was because of that, you know, we felt we fully believe in, in everybody on that team, in the coaching staff, in the, in the, in the staff that supports us, you know, and that, and that belief almost made reality a bit more harder to accept because when reality hit, it was, it was tough to accept and it was tough to deal with, you know, um, so yeah, as I said, it was it was a tough time. Um, you know, it's quite possibly rock bottom. Did it help in making a decision in terms of retirement? Possibly, but I think it's kind of a double-edged sword on that one because you know I didn't really want to end end the playing career on a negative note like that. But at the same time, you know, it is it is it did help, and it was maybe the you know the straw that broke the camel's back really in terms of what what we're willing to put up with and you know, and what we want to happen in the future, you know. You know, as, as I talk to you now, um, you know, you're someone that's clearly, you know, very passionate about British basketball and, and, and the off-court stuff, you know, you, you've sort of been at the, 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 the forefront of speaking out uh, on behalf of the players over the, over the last however many years. You know, now you're talking about potentially going into some type of front office role with a team. You're obviously studying politics, management, sports management, all this kind of stuff. I'm there like, well, it it makes sense here for you to get involved with the Federation in some type of capacity to help them sort out some of this mess, you know, kind of has that crossed your mind since coming back um, from Eurobasket? Have there been conversations, you know, we know they've just announced the new chair, Chris Grant, um, last week. Um, so kind of like, you know, what do you see moving forward? Do you see yourself being involved in any type of formal capacity um, with the Federation? Um, look, I'm you know, to a point where I may be blinded by the fact, but I'm British basketball's number one fan, I think. You know, I love British basketball. I love the people involved in it. Um, you know, the people like yourself, the people who evolved, you know, the people we don't know about, you know, the guys that are running the local league teams, the guys, you know, and I f fully believe, 100% believe that British basketball will work at some point. You know, I'm not in a position to be able to tell you when that, when that moment will be, but it's just too big a sport in too big a nation you know that this the game won't uh, work. You know, and I don't think it's a, it it's a thing about the game catching on because I do think there is um, there's obviously loads of kids playing it. There's loads of adults playing it. There's you know we've got a professional league. We've got you know we have the infrastructure. I just do think it's just a case of you know getting the people who know and understand and have seen it happen on other, you know, on other levels and other elite levels of how basketball works and just allow them to, to share that knowledge and, and move the game forward basically. Cause at the moment, one of the problems I think is the people involved, you know, and I do think, obviously I know we need to have a certain level of, 
you know, political ability, um, commercial ability and things like that. But, you know, the way the game works is very different to the way other sports work in the UK. It's, you know, it's almost, you know, the polar opposite to a lot of the more successful sports we have. And therefore, every time I hear basketball being compared to, I don't know, any sport, any other Olympic sport, it's like, well, yeah, that's great for them and I'm really happy for them, but that's not basketball. And basketball's right over there somewhere, you know, in terms of its, firstly, its capabilities, I think. And secondly, just, you know, its social, social aspect, its community aspect, its professional aspect. You know, there's not many sports in the UK outside of football that, you know, are as well worldwide and as popular they are as worldwide as basketball. Um, you know, and and although I do think people realise this, um, it's not you know nothing's really changing. We you know we I don't know over my over my tenure as a GB senior men's player, I've probably had what seven, six seven, chairman. Um, can't tell you how many board members. You know, and it just. You know, at some point, we've got to do something different, something that other sports don't do, involve other, involve people that other sports don't do. Um, and yeah, and I, but as I said before, you know, I want basketball to work. I will do anything I can to help basketball work. Um, so, so could yeah, you see so yourself being involved at a federation level? Yeah, I could. Yeah, definitely could. Uh, and would be open to the chance if the, if the situation was right. You know, I think, you know, we've heard other players speak out about it. Um, you know, I just do think players need to have a bigger voice. You know, players need to be heard. Ex-players need to be heard. Um, people who have coached internationally need to be heard. You know, people who have run teams internationally need to be heard. Um, because you can talk about the British Basketball Federation all day and, it's, and what it's responsible for and what it's not, but... You know, if, if the national teams are working, it makes their everyone's job a lot easier, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, from the BBL clubs to the NBL clubs to the grassroots situation. If we've got something to aspire to and and look up to and, and something that we're proud of as a nation, because at the moment, I don't think anyone in the basketball community is proud of what we're producing uh, in terms of teams on the floor and, and what they're doing. You know, I think once we've got that, then, you know, we can definitely move forward in, in a positive direction. Um, because I, I do think, you know, if the game moves forward, we have to move forward as one, and that's the whole basketball community, not just, you know, a board or a home nation. It has to be everybody, I think. Yeah, no, I, I've always wondered whether or not, um, you know, when it comes to developing basketball, whether or not the most important thing is you have a massive base and, and the participation levels are huge and you focus on the grassroots first or whether actually um, you focus on the, on the sort of the, the, the elite, the national teams to have that sort of aspirational platform, which will then, you know, develop the, develop the grassroots because they have a, they have something that they're looking to, to do. Uh, and I've, I've never been sure, but over recent years, I feel like I'm more leaning towards focusing on the elite, um, because of the importance of having that, 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 that platform to aspire to, you yeah. know, the reason people play basketball is because they want to play in the NBA or whatever and be an NBA superstar. Like, yeah, um, but if you, if you go around now and you ask a hundred kids that play basketball, you know, whether on their junior teams or whatever it's called, Prem, NBL Premier Leagues or whatever they're called in around the UK and you ask them what they aspire to be, what you get one, maybe two that will say, I want to play in the BBL or I want to play for GB. You know, they're all thinking about, oh, I want to go to college in the States or I want to, you know, like you said, oh, I want to be an NBA player. You know, it's you know, I think we have to 
really reinforce how important playing for your national team is. I think we've lost you know, a little bit of focus on that point, um, how beneficial it could be for you as a player, but also you know, why, why aren't we getting kids from London aspiring to play for the London Lions? Why aren't we getting kids from Manchester to play for Aspire or have you know, that one focus of playing for the Manchester Giants and representing their hometown? You know, that, that's the point I think we need to get to. And again, as I said, it will make, make the game better and make the leagues better and hopefully make the national teams better. Um, yeah. So Now you've done a, a year in the BBL. Kind of what is your analysis? You know, like I know I've, I've spoken to you many years ago about um, whether or not it's something you'd ever do. And, and, you know, even at that time, you were very open about the fact you said, I, w- I would love to play in the BBL. I'd love to play domestically. I'd love to be able to play in front of my, my family, my friends, play at home. Um, and like many other players have said, well, the money's not there. The level of competition's not there. The infrastructure's not there. So it just was not an, an appealing proposition at that time. You know, now you've obviously done it. I guess... The first question is, how was the reality compared to the expectations coming in? Like, you know, did you have a, a sort of a picture of what you think it would be like and then what it actually was like? And then two, I guess, an analysis of like the whole, the thing as a whole, like um, kind of what have you been your sort of takeaways of, of where the league is at, um, you know, after playing a, a sort of full season in it? Um, yeah, so I was, just, I mean, as I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, you know, I've, you know, really, really enjoyed my time playing back in the UK. Um and as I said to you many years ago, I, I would have loved to play back in the UK many years ago, you know, but as you know, the infrastructure and the, the money and the support wasn't there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think coming back to the UK was, you know, based on my experience, I think, abroad, you know, playing in, in, in a number of, you know, historically huge basketball countries. And it was almost, um, almost jealousy, I think, looking at all these domestic players you know, playing in front of their, you know, their mum, their dad, their, you know, their aunt, their little cousin would come and watch them play, their son and their daughter, you know, running around, you know, they'd go on Sunday to have Sunday lunch at their parents' house and stuff like that, just little things, you know, it was that, that little thing I think, oh, you know, how good would it be to be able to play back in the UK, you know, just be close to family, get to play in front of them, you know, get your, your nan down, you know, to come and watch you play. Just little things like that, you know, that as a, as a basketball player, a professional basketball player and a British basketball player that, you know, we kind of take for granted because we've never really had that opportunity to, to do it. But, you know, as you get older and you start to, you know, give importance to more things, it became more and more important that, oh yeah, it'd be like, you know, you know, when you take the money, the money situation out of the, you know, if you just look at the, the values that you are as a person, you know, oh, it'd be amazing to play in front of my family and stuff like that. You know, it's stuff like that that I was almost jealous of. And that was, you know, also started the thought process about coming back to the BBL. You know, when you know, kind of moving on, it was, you know, I was obviously aware of of some of the players, of some of the level. Um, and the, the, the main thing I realised very quick was that the, the talent level is there. Um, in terms of players, I do think there needs to be huge steps in terms of, of coaching um, and the coaching these players are going to receiving and the way teams play. If we, if that league or if the BBL has aspirations to, you know, to put teams in Europe and be successful in Europe, you know, that's an area that definitely needs some focusing on. But yeah, the talent level is definitely there. Um, I'd say the basketball IQ isn't quite there. Um, it's more. Uh, how would I describe it? You know, it is much more of an NBA style um, league in terms of lots of one-on-one, lots of individual, 
you know, you see guys guys go off for 30 points, you go, you know, 15 assists or 16 assists and stuff like that and stuff that you don't really see that stuff a lot in Europe. So that was kind of an eye-opener to me and saying, like, well, how are these guys doing that? But if you see the style of the game and the way it's played, it's, it is more like that and it is a game that allows you to put up, um, you know, big numbers if you have the capabilities to. And I think there are a lot of guys in the league who have capabilities to put up big numbers and, and do big things. It's just, you know, I think their basketball education hasn't necessarily been at the same level as some similar level guys in Europe and therefore when they do come up against those those guys they will struggle. But again, I just do think it is a question of, of learning more than, than teaching, really. Um, you know, giving those guys the exposure and and the ability to, to see what it is really like and and go up against those guys and I think, you know, that will take the the, the league up another step and and improve. But, you know, it is the league's obviously in a big transitioning period at the moment with 777 coming in um, which I think is very exciting you know they're very I think they are very excited about the prospects for the for the game in Britain which is also you know encouraging and exciting that you know like such a big company like them is is you know can see the value um, that a lot of people in in the UK can't you know and I just do think that, you know they're obviously coming across a lot of things that you know they may find difficult um but yeah, I just do think that is, I'm trying to work out the best way to say this, but it's almost like everyone's everyone's happy with their little piece of pie, basically, instead of thinking about the bigger picture in the BBL. Um, you know, I think if everyone starts to kind of work together and realise how big it can be, you know, I think everyone's bit of pie will become a lot bigger and, and everyone will be a lot more successful and, and valued in a, in a different light, I think, so... That's the only thing I'd really say about you know, the kind of the infrastructure and the way things are run, really. How much did, you know, of course, uh, you were coached by Lloyd Gardner, who's you've known for many, many years. Like, How much of did that play a role in you being able to come back? Yeah, it was very, it was huge, really. Um, <laughs> it was huge because, <laughs> I mean, the people that know me and the people that, you know, have worked with me, you know, as a basketball player, I'm... I think a lot of my basketball IQ, or I consider my basketball IQ to be very high. Um, and therefore, me working with someone that I didn't think was not on my level, but able to understand or, or relate to where I played and the experiences I've had uh, and understand that I wouldn't accept certain things in terms of standards was important to me because if not, it would have just been a, situation, a very negative situation, I think. Uh, and although, as, as Lloyd would admit, he had to manage me in a lot of situations in terms of my expectations and the way I think I thought things should have been done and, and whatnot, it was, you know, I really enjoyed working with him. Um, you know, as you said, we've known each other for years, but being able to work with him on that on that stage and at that level was was great, and I really, really, really enjoyed it, basically. What would be your assessment of the, of the season, of the Manchester Giants season? Um... I mean, you've got to put it in perspective, I think. Um, I think it was great from the from the point of view that the team have come from such a bad position in terms of over the last few years. You know, like, you know, Callum Jones was on the team last year and we had a number of conversations going up and down the M1 about things that happened in the past on the, at the Giants. Um, and yeah, and it was great also to see a team or a club invest in a really like a proper British core, not a British core that's just making up the numbers, but a British core that played that had an extremely important role on the team. 
you know, and, and really was the heart and soul of that team, you know, and, and again, going back to the way, you know, my experience and the, and the way things have happened in Europe, that's how the most successful teams are built. You know, they are built around a very strong, you know, national team or, or domestic core that then you can add pieces to instead of doing it the way the BBL seems to be built, which is bringing, you know, your important pieces as exports and then try and fill the gaps with British guys. You know, I think it should almost be the other way around. Um, because that, you know, obviously things in Manchester have gone a bit sideways, backwards, you know, whatever, however you want to call it. But um, I do think the idea behind it of of really giving importance to the British player was was refreshing, and at the same time proved that it can work. You know, um, so yeah, I mean, but as as the season, I say it was it was a successful season considering where we came from. We had a really good time. I think we enjoyed it on the court, which is always important. You know, from looking from the inside out, kind of thing. Maybe from the outside in, the fans may have expected a lot more. I don't know. Um, but we made a cup final. Um, obviously, something that that hadn't been done in Manchester for. I don't know, since Nick Nurse was there probably, I don't know, in the, in the early 2000s or late 90s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we would have liked it to finish in a different way. You know, obviously we lost in the playoffs um, and things like that, but it's basketball, it's sport, and, it, and it's almost more about, the, for us as players and coaches, more about the journey that we went, went on together than, than the actual end result, you know, because obviously everyone wants to win, you know, and everyone thinks they can win, but, you know, it's not always reality, and, and it's just the way it was, really. You mentioned it there. I wasn't sure whether to bring it out, but obviously things have gone a little bit sideways in Manchester um, since the end of the season. <laughs> you know, um, we've kind of obviously Lloyd's left and he's he's down in Surrey now. Uh, you know, a bunch of players left. Obviously, Jamal's in Cheshire, um, and there's been this kind of obviously Vince has now been brought in. Um, it's kind of been announced as sort of a GM slash slash coach, and there's questions about whether or not he's involved in ownership and kind of there's been all this weirdness with the league not announcing signings but the team announcing signings because they're doing due diligence around sort of this new ownership stuff that's going on obviously what's your understanding how much can you tell us about kind of like what has been going on and what the situation is in Manchester I don't know really know what I can tell you because I don't know if I have much more information than anyone else really unfortunately <laughs> right you know, which is another another annoying or frustrating way to end it you know I just do think because also you were on a multi-year deal originally, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was on a on a two-year deal, um, and really that was the the aim was to play two years there and see how it goes from there. Really, uh, but yeah, it, it it really went backwards towards the end of the season and and sideways and tits up, however you want to phrase it, kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I'd love to be able to tell you more. I'd love to know more about the ins and outs of what's actually gone on and what hasn't gone on and what is actually going on at this moment in time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know... But have you had conversations with them about what's going on this year? Like, are they expecting you back? Like, obviously, the season started and you're not on the roster. Like, kind of, there must have been some level of dialogue. Uh, I got a call, I think, mid-June, I think it was, when everything started kicking up about takeovers and, and whatnot. But after that, very, very, very limited. You know, I've had no. I'm still in Madrid at the moment. Um, came back after Eurobasket and have no one talked to me about potentially. Even though I was going through all these thought processes about stopping playing and not stopping playing, there was never really no dialogue about me potentially going to Manchester or, or getting a flight over to Manchester or anything like that. So it was all very, very weird, uncomfortable uh, situation. 
Um, but you are yeah, still technically only... you're technically a contracted player, but yeah. they haven't been in touch with you, and there's been no actual clear. Okay, you're not coming in for this season. You're retiring. Like there's been nothing. No. <laughs> I just I don't. Obviously, they're aware now. They're aware now that I'm retiring. But up until then, there was there was nothing. You, know, you told them rather than them being like, oh, are you going to let us know what you're doing this season? Yeah, it was more that. Yeah, it was more that, which I was not very happy with. But, you know, I understand that it's a difficult time up there. And But again, I just don't think it's the way you know, things should be done. Um, so, yeah. I mean, as I said, I was going to say before, like, you know, along with London, obviously, being the the capital city and everything. But I think Manchester is an extremely important, has an extremely important role to play in the BBL. Um, the fact that there was rumours of a team not being there this year, I think, is something that you know, as a league, shouldn't be contemplated because I just think it's such an important city. I mean, I love living there. They live and breathe sport up there. Um, they always have, you know, two huge football teams. But there's so many other sports that go on, you know, alongside football and alongside basketball. You know, that it's just a, a wonderful place to, to to be and a wonderful place to to play sport in, really. Um, so the fact that there was possibilities of a team not playing out there is just you know, ludicrous, really, from my point of view. What do you do? You, I mean, you, you may not even know, but like, obviously, if a, if a team's on the, on potentially withdrawing, have, is clearly having financial issues on some level, right? So, like, where are the financial issues coming from? Like, is it an inability to sort of raise commercial revenue? Is it a lack of fans coming to games? Like, do you have any kind of knowledge of of that stuff from a behind the scenes perspective? Um, not in the BBL, no. I wouldn't say I have enough knowledge to be able to comment on it. Um, but I do think it's obvious, like the facilities we're playing in. I think you know, building a team around selling tickets in the, you know, considering the size of our facilities is, you know, is a no-go basically. Um, you know, I think that what the situations that Leicester and Newcastle have at the moment should be the the minimum for what this the BBL should have. You know, I think every team should at a minimum level should have what. Leicester and Newcastle have, and I think what Leicester and Newcastle have done is great, and it's you know they're definitely leading the way in terms of developing a club in the UK. Um, they shouldn't be the the standard setters; they should be you know they should be where every team should be at, at the moment, I think. Um, and that, and that's where the league's got a rank to get everyone to, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I've I don't have enough knowledge or or anything like that in terms of the financial. There was as you said, there's obviously obviously financial difficulties, but I don't really know the ins and outs of 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 why not you know you still I mean you still see the Giants even in you know the beginning of this season still playing with no sponsorship on their shirt or anything like that I don't know if that's got anything to do with it I don't know how what the relationship with the the city council up in Manchester is so so yeah I mean it's crazy Cause there was a lot of ambitions right like when you when you first went there there was kind of this vision of what it wants to be and, you know, and there was announcements around sort of doing citywide uh, community initiatives and and really trying to get everyone behind the club um and there was a lot of ambition there but again i think it just it's proof of well it's either it's either one proof of how difficult it is how difficult the the, the british basketball market is to make something work which you know I, I definitely agree with on some level or two um you know on some level not not having the right people involved to be able to to be able to bring that that vision to life because you as we were discussing in, in the start of this conversation that you need a mix of there has to be some basketball people because it's a basketball team like, of course but you need people that have knowledge of, of the sort of the off-court roles the commercial side of things um you know selling tickets merchandise um sponsorship game day experience uh like all of these things that kind of i guess make a professional team um 
could you ever see yourself getting involved in in uh, on the ownership side, like owning a BBL franchise? Um, it was a funny that it was a conversation that came up, you know, with a few of the GB guys this this summer actually, you know, on these trips that we have across Europe and, and bus rides and stuff like that. It, it did pop up a couple of times. How much of a reality is it is, I don't know. You know, I, I mean, we haven't even got to the stage of looking at how much you know it potentially costs. Not to set up a team, and but to run it in, in what we consider the right way, you know, we don't really know, you know, generally or, you know, rough figures, but we haven't really looked into it properly yet. It, it, it's an appealing thought. Is it a reality? I don't know. But, yeah, I think... So a consortium of GB like players as an ownership group, a uh, consortium of GB <laughs> players sort of running a BBL franchise could be something that we see down the line, right? <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? That would be... Uh, That'll be something new, I think, that's never been done before. Well, when you say, like, um, you know, we've got an idea of how, or we want to run things, how things should be run, like, clearly, you know, you're alluding to things that, kind of in your experiences within the BBL, there are certain things that are not being done that from your, you know, experiences in Spain and, and in other countries are, are, I guess, minimum operating standards. Um, kind of what, what are those things, like, for people that don't know, like, kind of where are we missing a trick um, with regards to sort of player welfare, um, player experience when it comes to the BBL? Uh, I mean, one of the big things that stood out to me from the start in the BBL was the back-to-back weekends. You know, it's, you know, I think the, the stat, you know, that, that automatically, right from the jump, you know, lowers the standard of play just because, you know, although we are basketball players and people consider us, you know, maybe different or, you know, obviously there's a lot of gifted athletes and gifted, you know, sportsmen there, but it's it's very, very hard to play at your, your maximum level on back-to-back days or, or on one day off, you know, your body does need a certain amount of recovery, you know, and I understand there's all types of contracts and, and whatnot about the amount of games that need to be played within the league and stuff like that, but at the same time, you know that was a, that really stood up to me and something I really struggled with at, at the beginning of the year. You know, because I just never, never been. You know, obviously I played in tournaments and things like that where you are required to play on back-to-back games. But then during the whole year, you know, it does it does become extremely tiring, and you know, obviously increases the the injury, the possibilities of injury, and and, and things like that. Um, you know, which kind of moves me on to the next point is like the support the support staff that are surrounded by teams and stuff like that. You know, the, the, you know, the access players have to physios or doctors or to be able to get a scan if something goes wrong, stuff like that, you know, from from talking to other players and, and it's not easy. You know, there's only a few clubs that I think have physios at, you know, every practicing game and things like that. And it's just, you know, coming from from teams where it's unthinkable not even to have two physios and a doctor at practice, you know, to come into places where there's no one, you know, it's just... 10 guys and a coach, you know, it, it, it's, you know, there's, I'm not saying it has to be like it, but it is in other, in other places, but I do think there is a common ground where that's just sensible really. And, and, and as you said, you know, improves player welfare and players experiences of, of what they're getting on and off the court. I'm going to throw this out there cause we've, you know, we've had these discussions about a players association, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that, Kind of, we're trying to get some stuff rolling, uh, get get something off the ground to 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 bring players together and give a voice for players. Like, how important do you think um, the sort of the formation of a players association players association is, and and what kind of role do you see that having? Um, 
yeah, as you said, I, you know, especially having, I've, I've thought about this for a number of years, um, but especially after having played in the BBL for a year, it's, it's needed. You know, there's not a doubt whether we should do it or shouldn't. It's just needed. Um, players need a, a united voice. Um, they need to be heard. They need to, you know, the, you know, the powers that be, whether it be the BBL, the BBF, the home nations, they need to, to be aware of how valuable and how, you know, how players can be used as a tool, as, you know, a communicating tool and all these things. But, you know, but for all this to happen, I do think there has to be a united voice and that players need to be represented in the right way um, and at the right times. You know, there's lots of conversations go on and in boardrooms and in meetings and, and there's not even the thought of, of introducing, you know, the player aspect or, or a player's point of view. You know, and I just do think it's extremely important, and and it will be stream, extremely valuable, and you know, and I think eye-opening to a lot of a lot of people of how intelligent and how thoughtful and how and how much they can bring, not just as basketball players, but as people to to situations you know around British basketball. So yeah, I mean, it's needed, you know, both for men and for women, um, and I do think it will be another positive step, you know, for the game in this country. 100%. Um, switching gears a little bit, uh, I said to you beforehand, one of the things I really... Go on. My computer's yeah. about to sound. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> go, go, go grab your charger. Can you can you still hear me as you walk around? Yeah, I can still hear you, yeah. Okay, I'll keep, I'll keep talking then, uh, and then yeah, I don't have to cut this bit out. Um, so... Uh, yeah, switching gears. One of the things I, I wanted to speak about, and I think it'd be really interesting for people to hear about, because we never got to this on the the original episode that we recorded, which is episode fifteen. If people are interested in, in going back, um, was your your kind of early years. You know, you were one of the first, if not, well, yeah, one of the first, if not the first, um, sort of junior player from England to sign um, a contract in Europe as a fourteen year old in Spain. Um, and I would love to hear kind of that what your memories are of that, like kind of making that decision, kind of how it, how it came about and then why that ended up being the path that you obviously stuck on as opposed to taking what is, you know, the more standard route uh, with, 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 with UK athletes, which is sort of going to American high school and college. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that because I, I met last week. Um, I mean, I'm still in contact with him and, you know, he's been involved in, even in British basketball, which is Alberto Lorenzo. I met him last week for lunch as kind of a um, celebration because it was 20 years <laughs> to the day that I moved to Spain kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, like, I mean, unlike a lot of people in the UK, I was lucky in the fact that I was from a basketball family. Uh, and a basketball family that had, had uh, international experience, both playing and coaching, um, and therefore kind of knew a bit more about basketball, you know, outside of the UK and outside of the NBA, if that makes sense. Because I, I mean, I can remember back in when I was young, watching, you know, waking up at three, four in the morning and turning Channel Four, and I'm watching the NBA Finals, and that was kind of my first experience with basketball um, outside of what I had with my family and stuff, but. You know that the aspect of of European basketball never really crossed my mind um, until I went to just out of the blue. Um, a friend of my my dad talked to him about a basketball camp that was going on in Spain in the south of Spain, um, 
and that he was sending his kids on it and, and did I want to go kind of thing. You know, it was like a week residential camp in the mountains in the south of Spain. You know, every, I think everyone in the UK at that point had been to Spain on holiday. But, you know, I had no idea really where I was going, what I was going to do. I knew I knew I could play basketball. Um, I knew I was pretty good at it by that time. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I played National League, started to play for national teams and stuff like that. Um, but the whole concept of going to Europe or going to Spain, I had no idea they played basketball there. And going to a basketball camp was kind of eye-opening. And, yeah, you get there and... You know, they kind of separate you into teams by age and all of a sudden, you know, I'm just going off and that's, you know, what was I, 12, 12 or 13 or about, probably about 6, 4, 6, 5 at the time. You know, bringing the ball up the court, um, shooting the ball, going to the basket and things like that. And all of a sudden, my parents called me that, that evening and said that they've had about five calls with this club in Spain that they want to bring me over on a scholarship kind of situation. So obviously that developed, um, by the way, the team was called Estudiantes, which at the time was, you know, one of the powerhouses of, of European basketball. You know, they'd made EuroLeague Final Fours, they were in the, you know, the Spanish League Finals. Um, <laughs> coincidentally, there was like a lockout around the time I was I was talking to them and there was their spon main sponsor was like really trying to bring Jordan over <laughs> to, to play. Really, I, was, I remember. I can remember seeing it on the front page of the paper over there. I had no idea what it said. It just said Jordan and Estudiantes next to it. So it was, <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was just a bit surreal. But yeah, anyway, going back to the point, it was. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're in after the camp. We we're in constant conversation. That also, I think, open obviously as a 12, 13 year old. You know, I depended a lot on my parents. Um, I think that opened uh, the fact that they were interested. Opened a lot of doors into other opportunities around Europe, whether it be in Germany or other teams in Spain. Uh, and we did go on, on a few visits to different places, um, kind of recruitment trips, if that's what you want to call it, but at uh, 13 years old. Um, so, where, so where did you go? You know, we went to Germany um, and to a couple of other teams in Spain. Um, but I was, uh, after my first visit to Estudiantes, I was sold uh, on it. To give you a bit of context, like Estudiantes is a team that's kind of developed out of a high school back in the 1930s, 40s, and has become moved in, gradually moved up and became bigger and bigger, and you know, and now has one of like the biggest fan bases in, in Spain. It's got one of the biggest youth sections in Europe. You know, we're talking about you know youth youth sections with over a thousand players on it and, and things like that. So it's just the whole. And I can just remember the first time we arrived there. Um, just walking around, it was just eye-opening. You know, I've never seen so many kids, so many people, so many parents, all just there for for basketball. Um, outdoor courts, indoor courts, um, three o'clock in the afternoon till eleven o'clock at night, just completely jam-packed of you know team practices, individual practices. You know, kids running around the the block as you know S and C trainings going on and stuff like that. It was just, you know, I was sold on it. Um, and the fact that it had grown out of such a, a small situation meant that the the feeling around the club was just, you know, one of a kind. Um, and something that I think a lot of clubs have tried to imitate, but obviously it's it's very hard. You know, the the main gym where where I ended up practicing with the first team. Um, you know, there's a lot of times that we would have to wait and for the under sixes to get off the court to be able to practice. 
you know, because and like a lot of the American guys that came over didn't really understand it. And we're like, well, why can't we go on the court? You know, we're the pro team. We're the reason everyone else is here. And it's and it's like almost a bit different to a lot of other pro teams where it's not as in like this is a club that's been built from the bottom upwards and they give the same amount of importance to a five, six-year-old as they do to, to the pro team in terms of, you know, court availability and things like that. So, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Obviously decided to move there. Um, started playing with what would be the equivalent of, like, the under-16 team. Um, and, yeah, and just moved up. And within two or three years, I was practicing and playing with the, with the pro team, um, which, again... Until I got over there and realised how big basketball was, um, you know, it was I was thinking, oh yeah, I can play professional basketball, I can do this, I can do that. But until you actually realise what what is needed and what you need to do to to get there, you know, it's it's eye opening. But the fact that I did it and I was able to do it was, you know, extremely proud moment. I've still got my shirt hanging up at home from from my professional debut, you know, because it was. It is a very important moment, and and yeah. And it's how old were you? How old were you when you made your pro debut? Seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah, I was. Still, I remember. I remember because I remember going to school in the morning, and then going to the, straight to the game in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, yeah, I was still at school at the time, so it was uh, <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. What um and how like the, the the obviously say how how much or as little as you want to say but with regards to like how a junior contract works you know for for you to sign as a 14 year old you know you're signing with a professional team but obviously it's kind of you're still that age and so you're not a professional in that sense but there is still a contract involved right like kind of how, how does it work i mean as i said to i said before when we start talking about this that obviously at 14 13 14 15 you know no one's in any place to sign any type of contract on their own. So I did depend a lot on on my parents and, and obviously they took the lead on things like that. Um, I obviously had an agent at that time. You know, I was recruited by an agent. Um, well, I originally, I originally had a football agent because obviously coming from the UK and without the knowledge that we now have, we had no idea about any type of contractual agreements or anything like that. So my original kind of, first exposure to any type of agency was a football agent who was really good really helped me with the contract um but then i was recruited by by a basketball agent and you know it made things quite a lot easier um but yeah i mean i mean you say i wasn't a professional at the age of 14 but looking back on it now um, i was you know the the level of what they expected of me at, at that age in terms of commitment and um, an improvement and you know reaching targets you know looking back at it although I was having the time of my life as you can imagine living on my own um, well not living on my own but living in the halls of residence uh, and whatnot but with guys my age you know stuff like that and playing basketball um, it was not by no means a chore and it never and basketball's never really been what I consider a job or a chore or something that you know I have to do it's something that I've loved doing and and I think that was something I also learned when I was there. You know, it was just, you know, if you don't love it, you're not going to be good at it, basically. Um, what was it they were expecting so, yeah. of you? What, like, what, was a, what was your schedule looking like as a 14-year-old? So I'd leave in the morning to go to school with about three backpacks. Um, 
I'd get on the bus, go to school, finish school around half three. So it was a similar day, but then I'd go straight to the gym. And I'd have um, S&C workouts, you know, individual uh, technical workout. And then depending on the evening, I'd either have one or two team practices. So if I was playing, say, when I was a junior, I was like first year junior, under 18s, I'd probably practice with the under 18s, but then I'd also probably practice with the second team. Um, which was which was also obviously great for my development, but it was, you know, I'd get home, then I'd get home at, I don't know, 10, 30 and I'd have something to eat, do any homework I had to do because that was the, the, the only thing my mum never let up on was making sure that I did well at school, as any mum does. Um, so yeah, it was tiring. I remember we used to just have uh, one day a week off, like one afternoon a week off, um, which was, yeah, just recovery time kind of thing, just like... Just get home from school and crash, basically. Um, so yeah, it was it was tough, but it was you just got used to it. It was just the way it was. You know, there was no moaning. Everyone was on in the on doing the same thing, um, putting in the same amount of commitment. So, so yeah. So, will you get? At what point did you start getting paid to play basketball? So we were careful with this one because I'm not sure what the, the, the rules are now with the NCAA and things like that, but there was still, um, we still wanted to leave open the option of me going to college in the States, even though I'd gone down this European path of, of, for my development and whatnot, we still wanted to go and take, leave that, op that opportunity open, um, you know, which was open. It was a, a possibility. I was recruited. Um, you know, by Division One schools and stuff like that, um, and obviously, you know, I got to play in like the Nike Hoop Summit um, against guys, you know, against guys, which gave me also in the states, you know, playing it in the states gave me a lot of exposure to you know Division One schools and whatnot. Um, so it was a, it was a a decision. You know, I I'd say throughout my career, I probably made two important decisions, and they were both before the age of eighteen, which was one going to Spain and then one. Decided to stay in Spain, um, you know, which was based on a lot, of, a lot of, of reasons. Obviously, I had an agent at the time who was very much in the know about both both sides of the story in terms of the NCAA and staying and playing profession in Europe. So yeah, I mean, it was it was an it was very interesting going looking back on it and the, and the things we said and the, and looking back in hindsight of the way things things have turned out and thing the way things have worked. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was definitely. I wouldn't. I don't regret any decision I've ever made. Basically, is the way I'd put it. And I thought I'd, they've always been made for the right reason, and and for me, you know, for the general, for the greater good, really, in terms of my professional career and, and me as a person. So, so just uh, on the on the college piece. So you were recruited by a number of Division One schools. Like, who was recruiting you? Did you go on actually any official visits? Like, I assume this was when you basically finished your high school career. What's your high school career in Spain? So when you were eighteen. You were then then had to then make that decision whether, you know, whether you sign a contract, a professional, I assume a contract, a professional contract in Spain, or you then go to the US college route. Yeah, it wasn't so much sign the professional contract; it was more activate the contract I had, if that makes sense. So everything was already set out in terms of, but we just wanted to make sure that we weren't reaching NCAA rules, kind of thing. Um. But yeah, I mean, I, the, it came down to the fact that the main school I was, I wanted to go to and they wanted me to go to was Syracuse. 
Um, and I had been there again on the basketball camp. Um, you know, they'd taken me around and I'd seen the university and I loved it. You know, it was just, you know, a different world, you know, from what we're used to seeing in the UK in terms of universities and stuff like that. The campus was just like a, a city, you know, I don't know if, if anyone listening here has, has seen or seen the Syracuse games or, or been to the, the Carrier Dome, but the Carrier Dome is ridiculous um, in, in, the, in where they play. It's like, I think it's got like 80,000 seats. Obviously, they don't, you can't, it's made for American, indoor American football, I think, or athletics or some or whatnot. But, but yeah, I mean, they've got people, like 30,000, 40,000 fans going to the games and stuff like that. And you see other, bars, other you know, players at the time when I was walking around campus and they're you know, like superstars. So, I mean, who wouldn't, wouldn't be attracted to that? And, and the fact that, um, I mean, I remember talking to one guy when I was at the Hoop, the hoop Summit who committed to Syracuse and he was saying, that, oh yeah, you should definitely come, we'll be really good, this, that and the other. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I decided not to. I think it was the right decision. Um, but what, what factored into that decision? How did you, how did you, like to be an 18 year old and turn that down is, is tough, you know? Yeah, it, it was tough. And as I said, it was an important decision. Uh, it was a hard decision. But it just came down to, and again, I'm lucky because I'm from or part of a basketball family, a family, and that just doesn't mean my close family. That means people that I'm associated with, people I know, uh, who who really know basketball. You know, they really, really know basketball, and they know. And we came to the conclusion that for my development as a basketball player, um, I was going to get more out of um, playing professionally in Europe, basically. Um, you know, I'm playing at 17, I'm playing against um, you know, professionals who have already done that for those four years at college in the States. They've already gone through that process and now they're professional. And these are the ones that have been churned out the other end who are considered good enough to be professional. You know, and I'm going that up against them on a daily basis. You know, and these, these are the best players that have played in college basketball. Obviously, the one, apart from the ones that have gone to the NBA, but these are the best guys. And you know, I'm putting myself up against that every day. I thought it was a lot more valuable and a lot and a lot better for my development than than going to to school in the states. And there's also that aspect of um, European basketball for me at the time. Obviously, the game's changed a lot since then. Um, we believed it was better for me my development as a player. As you know, like I'm a stretch skilled um, four man, which at the time in the states didn't really exist. You know, uh, we had the feeling and from conversations with with coaches at the university to that my role would have been, you know, anyone knows Syracuse, you know, they have their two, three zone and they start just standing in the middle of the zone and, and, and play close to the basket, you know. And, and and I'm not sure, well, I am sure that's not where I wanted to be as a basketball player. That's not what I wanted to do as a basketball player. You know, looking back at hindsight, if I had gone to Syracuse, would I have gone to the NBA? Possibly. You know, I may have had more possibilities of going to the NBA if I was at Syracuse, possibly. Would I have become as good a basketball player? I doubt it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, hindsight, everything's easy. But, you know, as I said before, I'm not unhappy with every decision I've ever made and I'm, I would make it again, really. Did you feel like the NBA was in reach at any point? I remember, obviously, you did a stint in the NBA Summer League, didn't you, with, with Brooklyn in, like, 2014, I think. Um, but kind of have you had other conversations outside of that? Like, um, yeah, how close did it feel? Yeah, I think it was it was a, re- a reality. 
uh, was a possibility. It wasn't just, you know, I, I hear a lot of uh, other guys, British guys, international guys saying, oh yeah, I would, if this hadn't happened, I'd have gone to the NBA and stuff like that. But, um, you know, the NBA is a big enough organization and uh, with enough scouts and enough um, infrastructure that if you're good enough, they'll find you, basically. You know, if they think you're good enough, yeah, and there's always, you know, right time, right place kind of situations, but at the end of the day, if you're good enough and they think that you, they can help you, they'll find you, they'll come and get you, you know, and, and and it's the NBA, so if they come and find you and they want you, you're going, you know, and it's not, it's not like, no, you know, I think I'll stay in Europe, you know, no, you're going to the NBA, mate, like, there's no, there's no two things about it, there's, it's the NBA, it's everyone's dream, it's everywhere everyone wants to get to, and you know, and you're telling me you'd rather play in a in a gym in the middle of, of Greece on a fifth of December or play against LeBron James. I mean there's no there's no doubt in that, you know. So but yeah, I mean it was it was a possibility. I wouldn't say I was the elite of the elite in terms of talent, in terms of, you know, a, a definite hundred percent lottery pick. Um but yeah, if certain circumstances have changed and certain things have happened throughout my career um, in terms of injuries and that, yeah, it was definitely, definitely, definitely a possibility. One of the things that um, actually surprised me uh, last season with you in Manchester, you know, like obviously we were doing a, we did a top ten plays in the BBL, and as part of that, I go through every single made field goal and every single block shot that happens in the BBL every single week um, to then pick out the best plays. And one of the things that really uh, I had not noticed or seen before because obviously we haven't seen you in enough games because you've always been abroad and I don't watch games in the ACB or wherever um, was just how good of a passer you are um, and I think that well for me it was a very much an underrated part of your game uh, and then seeing in the BBL like just I mean to do a highlight reel of your assist last season would be like I would think it would be pretty impressive like where did that come from was that a, would you think that was a direct um, product of skill development stuff in Spain or do you think that that's you know maybe just a, a natural talent that you have yeah I definitely think it's a natural talent um, I also think my improvement in that aspect comes with um, you know obviously playing with a lot of great passes but also the, you know the older you get almost the, and my bar, your basketball IQ increases you know so and it was almost, as, I mean, at Manchester last year, it was almost a case of, at the beginning of the season, a practice just throwing the ball against people's heads. Because, you know, in the in the UK, it's kind of like, as I said, when I talk, when I talk briefly about the style of play, like, you'll run a play, but everyone knows at some point someone's just going to go one-on-one. -on -one. So, you know, I'll make this cut, but I won't really look at the ball and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, like, I'm throwing these passes and guys are kind of catching it and surprised how open they are. And they've got a wide open layup, you know, and it's it, it was kind of funny to me at points, and I did quite enjoy throwing those passes against people's heads. But um, but yeah, I mean, it is um, you know I've almost always you know I have a I, I enjoy making a a good pass, you know. And I think Lloyd will say this sometimes as well. Like I sometimes get a bit um, overexcited about about passes and try and make an absolutely ridiculous difficult one. Um, but, you know, I get a lot more excited by making one of those passes and seeing someone else score than I do, you know, by, I mean, I've never done it, but breaking someone's ankles or crossing someone over or not, whatnot. Do you know what I mean? It, 
you know, the, the level of fulfillment and, and stuff like that and what it gives back to me as a player is a, is a lot more fulfilling than, than anything else, really. So I'm conscious of time here, so um, let's kind of start wrapping up with some some wrap up questions from your career. You know, like, so it's 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 been 20 years since you went to Spain. You're 34 now, right? So you went when you were 14. Um, when you look back over the last sort of two decades, I guess what what are the the biggest highlights, standout moments? I'm assuming probably the Olympics are going to be up there, but um, you know, um, along with that one, but what are the other sort of peak moments that you would that you would point to? standout moments um yeah i mean it's definitely got to be like pro debut but one that's always stood out to me as well personally is is the gb senior men's debut um which was a big one and the one that you know i'll always remember um yeah i mean it's a tough one i've had you know i've been lucky enough to be part of you know of a lot of, of really good teams you know been part of a lot of really good moments but as i said at the beginning of the show you know the the thing that i will most miss is the day-to-day stuff, the day-to-day being a basketball player. Um, you know, think, just thinking about it now, I can just, just got stories popping up in my head about, you know, just not even playing experiences, but, you know, just trips and uh, the time on the practice court and, uh, you know, going to the gym at 12 o'clock at night to get some shots up with your teammate and just like, just, just what many people will consider silly stuff or stupid stuff, but it's stuff that, made the whole journey worth it um so yeah i mean you can always as you said you can say olympic games you know i think of the olympic games is yeah it was great um but it also had like a a negative side to it and stuff like that but you know it's just that this day-to-day you know the long summers with gb the you know stuff like that it's just yeah i mean it's stuff that you know everyone's got their own view on things everyone's got their own but that's that's the one thing i would highlight you know of my career of you know what's made it special I think what about your best individual performance oh that's a good one um I mean I've never been a elite level scorer I've been able to I can put the ball in the basket without a shadow of a doubt but you know I mean I think what I consider being an elite level scorer and what other people may consider being an elite level scorer is different but um you know there's been a number of games where I've you know, come close to maybe triple doubles and, and, you know, but maybe with 12, 13 points, you know, not, not putting up like, you know, I have had 30 point games and, and, and one games for think for, for my teams in that sense, but it's just, it's hard to finger point that, you know, I mean, people here in Spain still stop me on the street. Um, cause I, cause I live in Madrid, obviously where, where students have come from and now cross time rivals against Real Madrid. And I remember in 2000 and or nine like I hit a, a game winning three on the buzzer in overtime to beat them um, and people still to this day stop me on the street and say that was like the best three minutes of my life kind of thing to me you know which is you know it's in, it impacts you you know like the fact that someone is that supportive or that sold that, that this team is the best thing in the world and that you've you know helped them have the happiest three moments minutes of their life to me it's pretty special kind of thing so yeah, it's just moments like that that you know kind of stick with you more than individual performances. Um, but as I said, you know you can probably go through. I'm not sure who's got all the stats now, but like Jamie Smith or someone like that who's got all these collection of stats, and you can probably pick out two or three games that statistically stick out. But but yeah, I mean it's hard to finger point you know, a game like that. What about the best coach you've ever played for? 
Oh, that is a good one. I had a feeling you might ask me something like this. <laughs> um, I mean, luckily enough, I've played for some really good coaches. Um, obviously, the ones that stand out now in terms of in the British public eye, like Chris Finch and, and Nick Nurse and people like that. Um, and I would say that Finch is probably um, technically and tactically the probably one of the best coaches I've ever had. Uh, he was a yeah mastermind, I would say, technically and tactically. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had all types of coaches. I've had crazy ones. I've had nice ones. I've had you know absolute lunatics. You know, I've been hit on the shoulder of a stick because my defensive stance wasn't wasn't low enough. Um, you know, I've got countless stories. I've had a lot of coaches, to be fair. Um, but yeah. I mean, from all different nationalities and all different walks of life, ex-players, old men, um, guys who, coaches just get a seat out and put it at half court and, and shout instructions from there because they can no longer stand up for too long. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had all types, so it's hard to, but yeah, I mean, from a technical, tactical point of view, I think Finch is up there. Um, obviously, worked with Scariolo, who's... You know, he's just one Eurobasket with Spain and he was another. I mean, I'm convinced now, by, you know, after all these years, that to be a coach at that level, you have to be nuts. You know, you have to be a bit around the bend in one way or another. Um, you know, just, you know, you know Scarilla was that. He was extremely precise, precise in everything he wanted and, and the way he wanted it. Uh, and the same with some of the, you know, the great. I played for like a great ex-Croatian player, Velimir Perasovic, and he was the same. You know, there was no, you didn't have thirty seconds to to breathe at practice. You know, it was full on intense. But then I played for guys who coaches who have forbidden me from going to the gym more than once a day. You know, it's you just get everything. You know, and they're all they're all the same. They're all equally as crazy as the next one. But you know, that's what makes them great. Was it a surprise to you that Spain won Eurobasket? You know, going into Eurobasket, obviously they were not very much far from favourites, but the, you know they've done it again, and their, their summer across all age groups this year has been ridiculous. Um, boys and girls, 16s, 18s, 20s, uh, and then obviously seniors, they've medalled at everything they've they've played in. Um, you know, was it a surprise for you that, that they won it in the end, or is it just like, well, they're Spain, you know, that's what they do? I mean, it was a surprise because if you look, Eurobasket this year was probably the strongest Eurobasket ever in terms of talent level and. And obviously the amount of hype it got before the tournament because of the people that were involved. Um, but, but again, I think, obviously, and I think like a couple of um, superstars or people have talked about it and talked about it at Eurobasket in terms of like people like Janice and stuff saying that European basketball is tough. You know, it is. And the thing that makes it so tough is the teams. It's not like in the NBA where you have individual talent that pops out and just can win your game. In, in Europe, you need a good team to win, you know, and... And uh, Spain winning this Eurobasket is not a consequence of Spain starting practicing on the 1st of August. You know, Spain winning Eurobasket is the fact that they've had, you know, the Hernan Gomez brothers, they've had um, everyone on that team, obviously apart from Lorenzo Brown, brought up through their system. You know, and they've played the same way with the same people, um, with the same philosophy for years upon years upon years. And they just know that they just know how to play to each other, how to get the most out of each other, and, and what's expected of them. You know, they all know their role. They all know what what coach wanted of them, and I think that's an extremely valuable and an underrated area of the game. You know, and I think 
something that you know definitely teams and national teams in the UK can learn from. Who's your favourite teammate of all time? Oh, it's tough, that isn't it? Um, <laughs> Getting ready to upset some people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can't, I can't say. I can't say one. I can't say one. I've had lots of great ones. You know, both with GB. Um, you know, from the early years when like people like Drew Sullivan, Loire kind of looked after me a bit. They were really good teammates. Um, you know, even going back to to people like Andy Betts, you know, he was a really good teammate, you know, and it's not someone I played for a lot of time, but it's someone I've got a, an extremely fond memory of, you know, and the way he carried himself and the way, you know, how much, how good teammate he was really. Um, but yeah, I've played with lots of you know, great players, um, but also great people. Um, you know, so I think to be a great teammate, you've got to be a great person. And I've played with a lot of those. So it's, you know, it's really hard to, to put my finger on. You know, even in this past Eurobasket with some of the guys on the team, you know, there were some outstanding, outstanding people and teammates on that team. You know, and, and to be a great teammate from my point of view, you don't have to be my best friend and that. And although a lot of my very close friends are um, are from basketball and are from playing with them over the years, but, you know, the, you know, the amount of, you know, using the GB team this summer, for example, the amount of leadership, the amount of, the amount of caring, the amount of support that was in that locker room day in and day out was, you know, something that I'll always remember, you know, for a number of years. What advice would you give to a, a young player that, that wants to have a successful professional career like you, kind of get it done, like, you know, they're 12, 13 years old, you've now, you've seen, you've seen basketball in Europe, you've seen basketball in the UK now, having done a season here, you're seeing where British players might be a bit behind or whatever, like, what advice would you give to a, to a young person that's aspiring of, of, of making it pro? Um, definitely ask questions. You know, I do think there is a, you know, especially the, there is a community out there that's, you know, of, of players, current players, senior players, ex-players that are willing to help. Um, you know, and, and the, I think a lot more approachable than a lot of people may think they are. Um, so yeah, definitely ask questions about, you know, what they think is best or what they would have done in this situation. And then I would just say fall in love with the game. You know, there, there's there's not enough time in the day for you to, to go and shoot, to go and work on your ball handling, to go and you know just really fall in love with the aspect of it, and and the other all the other stuff will come really. I think you know, it's, it's, the moment I stopped, you know, even towards the end of my career, stopped worrying and just focused on on doing what I knew was best for me, and and, and focusing on the fundamentals of the game. You know, the things that. You know, I worked in the back garden with, with my dad when I was, you know, 10 years old. You know, those are the things I still keep doing today. You know, there's no, everything in basketball has been discovered and and practiced and someone's tried it at least once, you know. So there's nothing new you're going to run, you're going to discover. I just, you know, I think it is really just a case of doing the, the simple things to the best of your ability. And, and I think everything else will come after that. And then finally, um, what do you want your legacy to be when they talk about, you know, Dan Clark, the player? You know, how do you want to be spoken about? How do you want to be remembered? Um, definitely as a good teammate or a great teammate. Um, someone that has always given his all the team whether you know whether it's worked or not worked but has always been 100% sold on on what's going to work and what's not going to work and and being part of that solution to, to problems on the team and, and things like that um but yeah it's kind of hard for me to really talk about what I 
theme for myself really <laughs> personally but it's um but yeah i mean those are definitely values that i i consider to be important and and that i want you know people to um recognize me for i think but outside of that whether you think i was a good player or a bad player um and not an interesting player that's just personal opinion isn't it and it's you know it comes with being a professional athlete and if you like me great if you don't well also great you know <laughs> so so yeah that's where I'm, I'm at with that one really that's a perfect place to leave it dan thank you so much um for taking the time today obviously congratulations on an incredible career you know i think i'll be the first to say that um you know your your dedicated service to gb particularly is is hugely inspirational for everyone and i think everyone can take a, a leaf out of that book um and i look forward to sort of seeing what's next you know following the progression of your career hopefully seeing you around a little bit more um and uh yeah seeing you continue to make positive moves for for british basketball yeah i appreciate it, sam likewise i'll definitely see you around a lot more now. <laughs> you are listening to the hoops fix podcast the official voice of the uk's largest basketball website visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news videos and more hey podcast listener that you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now, uh, open up your podcast player, go to the Hoops Fix podcast, you'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week.